Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Thursday, December 3rd. We begin with a look at what the eventual coronavirus vaccine rollout will look like in Canada. We get the thoughts of Dr. Eleanor Fish, Professor of Immunology at the University of Toronto. Have you been feeling more tired, stressed out, or just generally fatigued over the past few months? We speak with a wellness expert who said COVID fatigue is real. The increased struggle women have faced during the pandemic has been well documented. We talk with the Deputy Chief Economist from RBC about the road to recovery for Canadian women when it comes to careers and finances post-pandemic. And finally, the 2020 edition of Pledge Day here at 770 CHQR takes place tomorrow. We meet another one of our great charity recipients, ARC, the Alberta Adolescent Recovery Centre. 8.43 on the morning news. There looks to be a light at the end of the tunnel for Canadians, and especially here in Alberta. As Premier Jason Kenney announced yesterday, the province will receive its first doses of a vaccine by January 4th. But what will it look like for us once it arrives, and how should it be rolled out? We hear the opinions of a professor of immunology at the University of Toronto, Dr. Eleanor Fish. Good morning, doctor. Good morning. Well, let's break this it's down. It's a good morning. It is. It's, well, any morning we wake up. <laughs> in, uh, 20, it's, uh, listen, I want to break this down because, you know, obviously we don't have production in our nation. So the vaccine, uh, if you can paint a picture for us, arrives at our doorstep. Is it going to be distributed evenly through all provinces or, or will or may some provinces get the vaccine first? Okay. Well, first of all, your statement about no vaccine production isn't absolutely correct okay. because that will be happening in Canada. Um, the whole process, um, just to give you a quick bit of background, the whole process was to ensure that Canadians would have access to vaccines as they became available. Mm-hmm. So the initial uh, approach was to procure a really diverse portfolio of potentially vaccines that were going to be successful. So we have seven or eight that we procured as a a Canadian government. Um, And at the same time, we have invested heavily into production also of vaccines, uh, which will happen in Quebec. So that's both is working in tandem. Mm -hmm. Now, to answer your question, um, which I've actually forgotten. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Would some some provinces get it ahead of other provinces? Right, right, right. So... This is an excellent question. So it's all going to depend on those jurisdictions and their ability to distribute along a supply chain. So if it's a a vaccine that requires minus 70 freezing, right, certain jurisdictions don't have the capability to actually uh, freeze at minus 70. So we might imagine that in certain jurisdictions in the far north, this isn't feasible. So sending them that vaccine is is inappropriate. So depending on the vaccine that arrives first, and we anticipate it's going to be the Pfizer one. So we will look at various provinces because it's going to be provinces and territories that will decide how they're going to roll out their vaccines. And it'll be up to the federal government to make the decision what percentage of the first doses goes to each of those provinces based on their ability to distribute supply chains and what kind of storage facilities they have in place and their populations. So with the Premier announcing yesterday that we can expect to get vaccines by January 4th, is, is that realistic or is that just we're potentially ready should it come to us by then? Okay, so the first thing that has to happen is that um, Health Canada has to approve the vaccine. Mm -hmm. So we've already heard that in the UK they've approved the Pfizer vaccine and that will now start being distributed. 
I anticipate, or we anticipate, because trust me, Health Canada is chomping at the bit to, to try and approve these appropriately, but they have to do their due diligence, look at safety, look at manufacturing practices to ensure that we get a safe and effective vaccine. Once they approve the vaccine, then it will be sent. So there's some preliminary findings that they've, they've been reviewing. So January the 1st, 4th, you know, maybe, but I anticipate what is happening is that they are planning for a January the 4th receipt of supplies uh, and need to put in place everything to distribute. I mean, that was the recommendation, I believe, that the uh, Canadian government has gone ahead to assume that in January we should have supply chains and distribution all organized. Whether it'll arrive in the beginning of January mm-hmm. remains to be seen. And right. it'll be dependent on approval and the ability of these companies to actually ship these vaccines to us. Thank you so much uh, for your time this morning, Dr. Fish. My pleasure. But everyone should be optimistic. The fact that we've got this diverse portfolio is amazing. I like your optimism, and I think we could use it at this time. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah. That is Dr. Eleanor Fish, Professor of Immunology at the University of Toronto. 6.42 now, and we've been isolated for, what, nine months now, socializing less, dealing with increased anxiety thanks to pandemic restrictions. So how can we avoid, moving forward, how can we avoid more COVID fatigue and really looking after our own mental health? With some help, we're joined this morning by Bree Griffin, who is Director of Wellness at Sprout Wellness. Good morning. Thank you for being here with us. No problem. Good morning to you. Okay, let's talk about what exactly is COVID fatigue. It's not necessarily tired. It's just being Mm -hmm. tired of, isn't it? Oh, definitely. Yes. So COVID fatigue is really the kind of collective exhaustion that we're feeling as a population right now after nine months of, of having to obey these really strict rules that have made us change our lives, that have made us have to isolate and not be around people that we love or that have made us, you know, have to stay in, in one spot um, instead of going to work or going out, um, you know, to eat uh, so that we are really, you know, around the same people all of the time. Um, it's really just this kind of ongoing chronic stress that uh, is really just, you know, in place because of all of the, the lockdowns, the uncertainty that we feel, the inability to, to plan for the future, to know what's going to happen. Um, so we're just, you know, we're feeling that collectively as a population right now. Mm-hmm. Bria, and it's an interesting time because we have this pandemic fatigue. We Our whole routine's been turned upside down, and now we've got colder temperatures, perhaps being locked indoors more, and what we've heard a lot about over the past several years, seasonal depression. It, it's kind of a perfect storm mm-hmm. this time of the year. Oh, yeah, it definitely is. So, I mean, on top of the pandemic, on top of, of I would say, social things, you know, like the, the, the U.S. election was really exhausting for a lot of people. <laughs> Now we have you know, flu season kicking in and, of course, seasonal depression. Um, and that's, it's just a, you know, a recipe for a lot of different wheels falling off the train all at the same time. So, Bria, how can we identify this burnout, maybe within ourselves or others, and then, mm-hmm. and then work to deal with it? Yeah, definitely. So I think one of the things that is, is interesting is that it's difficult to identify this in yourself because... It's been happening over such a long period of time. Usually when we're stressed, we kind of have this fight or flight mechanism that kicks in. And, you know, 20 minutes later, we can relax and and let go. But we've been dealing with this for months now. So we kind of feel like it's the new normal. Um, But everyone should just, you know, take a step back, take a breath, ask themselves, what were you doing last year? How did you feel even in, in February, January of this year? 
do you feel a little different now? Would you, you know, would a day off be good for you? Um, yes. And I think personally <laughs> that, you know, outside of the workplace, people should remember that it's okay. You know, you maybe can't go anywhere, but take your vacation. Remember that you can give yourself a day or two to do absolutely nothing. Stay in bed um, if you want to just be alone with yourself. Um, just remember we're all in this together. Um, and in the workplace, we really encourage employers to remember that this isn't over. Employers mm-hmm. really jumped in in March and April, and, and they were so hands-on with employees because they had to be to keep businesses going. But they're fatigued, too. But, you know, we need leaders to keep um, to keep on keeping on um, and to remember that we need to communicate to employees that their well-being is of the utmost importance, to have team leaders set examples on, you know, how they're staying healthy, um, and you know what? To remember to remind your employees that they don't have to work until midnight just because they're working from home. Mm-hmm. They can still set breaks. You know, go out for a walk in the middle of the day. Um, stop and make dinner. You know, turn off your computer um, by the time work the workday is over. What about you know uh, going off the beaten path and, and learning something different or taking a new hobby, trying to you know perhaps challenging yourself in a way you maybe never have? Would that help? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Hobbies are a great way for you to kind of refocus on yourself. Um, learning something new is really, you know, a, a great way to, to stimulate yourself and to kind of um, de-stress a little bit. Or even, you know, not not learning something new, but doing something that you really you love, like, like a puzzle or um, painting or something like that that just allows you to connect with yourself. Um, is really important to remember. And, and you know, we're, we are about to go into a long winter, so getting some hobbies in place right now, I think, would be a, a really great way to keep your mental health um, top of mind throughout the next few months. Well, I love what you guys are doing online. Great website. Sprout at Work is a, a wellness company that's tackling the issue of employee burnout. So if you're uh, if you're feeling that, maybe uh, there are some tips that you can go at to sproutatwork.com and get some help. Thanks for joining us, Bria. Thank you so much. That is Bria Giffen, who is a director of wellness at Sprout Wellness. A recent economic report from RBC found that more than 20,000 women left the labor force between February and October of this year. And officials think the road to recovery is going to be a complicated one. To talk more about this new study, we're joined by Don Desjardins, who's deputy chief economist with RBC. Good morning, Don. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Well, let's talk about some of the reasons why women left the workforce in such high numbers. It's obviously a lot of it pandemic related and and childcare issues too seem to be the top one, right? Yes, that's exactly it. It's the industries where women work. Um, They've suffered the greatest hit, of course, because a lot of those industries have person-to-person contact. Uh, food and accommodation services, retail, entertainment. So so that's one of the reasons. The other reason um, is uh, we looked at which groups of women uh, seem to be leaving the labor force. Uh, there were two cohorts. One, young women, so 20 to 24. And when we look at the data, it suggests that these women are training or doing education, post-secondary education. So so, okay, we can understand that. Then the second cohort uh, was women, were women 35 to 39 years. And of those that left in within that, that older cohort, 35 to 39, 53% of those women had children under the age of six. So, you know, this links uh, to childcare, to the options, the availability um, for women who have a greater responsibility in terms of the childcare. 
Don, you know, we've seen the different programs. It seems like there's been a different, you know, aid program every week or two here in our nation, which is great. People need it during this time. But is that, uh, from your eyes, viewed as more of a Band-Aid solution and might not be the impetus required to get women back post-pandemic? Well, I think a few things, of course, have to happen. And this is what we're, we're watching closely. You know, once we get the vaccine, some of these industries where women had been working in February before the pandemic, you know, are they going to reopen to the same degree that they were, you know, before all of this hit us? And are those women going to go back to those jobs? And of course, that's going to be, first of all, the availability of the positions. But secondly, you know, the fact that do we have childcare so they can all just migrate back? Because when we think about women's participation in the labor market, you know, that has been a critical part of our prosperity over the past 30 years. The fact that we have seen women come back into or actually come to the labor force in greater numbers mm-hmm. and their participation rate has come down. So so this is what we're watching. And, and you're right. It really does relate to, you know, not just is the job there, but is it worth me putting my kids in child care if child care is even there and available for them mm-hmm. at the price of it right. versus going back to work and earning a certain amount of dollars? Yes, exactly. And so, you know, when we heard uh, from the government, um, you know, they are helping with uh, upping the child care benefit uh, for low and middle income families that have children less than six years. So that can defray some of the child care costs, assuming there is available spot. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they've also created um, what they're calling a secretariat. So of stakeholders are trying to design a program, work with the provinces, you know, health care agencies to try and look at what could it look like to ensure that we have um, available, affordable uh, child care. It's interesting because, you know, as the pandemic struck, women were, you know, obviously hit hard. And uh, it, it seemed very quickly that these changes uh, they had to implement in their lives to, to, to make a go of it from their normal life so pre-pandemic. I'm wondering if, if you think it's going to be the inverse and it will take longer. It, it came in quickly, but uh, post-pandemic, is it going to take longer for things to maybe get back to normalcy for the women? Yeah, I mean, I think things are, you know, we're seeing some structural changes um, in our economy, how we're purchasing things, for example, um, you know, online shopping and online commerce has certainly picked up significantly. So what will that look like in the post-pandemic world? Will we go back to going into shops on a regular basis or will we see some of that stickiness in terms of online shopping? So, you know, some positions in that industry may change. They may just look different. It could be fulfillment centers, um, couriers, you know, there could be a a change from that perspective. Um, When we look at hospitality, um, you know, presumably once the vaccine comes, you know, we'll start to see our borders open up. So we will have travel, we'll have tourism, these types of things. So, you know, it's not going to happen instantaneously. But as we get to the end of 2021, you know, we anticipate a lot of these industries will finally be getting back to where we were in February uh, 2020 in terms of their output and their demands for labor. I took some uh, economic uh, classes in university and uh, 101 and <laughs> et cetera, and I found the whole thing very confusing. So I'm wondering, you're a deputy chief economist for one of, if not the biggest bank in Canada. How difficult has this past you know, I guess nine months for someone in your position been, whereas it's, it's, you have no 
previous example of, of what things are going to turn out like being a first of its kind in modern times. Tell us about that. Well, you know, um, we have our, our models, and then we look, and, and a lot of the data points that we're plugging into those models are not data points that fit in those models very well. Mm-hmm. Um, so certainly it has been very challenging to, to really get our arms around, you know, what is the economy going to look like on the other end of this pandemic? Um, and it is monitoring uh, where we're seeing lockdowns, how that's impacting uh, economic activity and job creation. Um, so, yeah, it's it's absolutely been challenging. Um, you know, we look back to how we see uh, the economy evolving in terms of, you know, demand. Uh, we know that you know, in terms of job creation, it is going to look a little bit different, we would think, as we go through the, the year ahead. So it's trying to understand what are, you know, what's the new economy, what are the new drivers of mm-hmm. our economy going to look like? An interesting discussion for sure. It's not over yet, is it, Dawn? <laughs> it is not. No. Yet, Thank sadly, you so much no. for joining us. Appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for having me. That is Dawn Desjardins, who's Deputy Chief Economist with RBC. Tomorrow is Pledge Day here on 770 CHQR and our roving reporter Dave McIver has been featuring charities that your Pledge Day dollars will go to. And this morning we're hearing about the Alberta Adolescent Recovery Centre or ARC and the great work they do for young Calgarians and their families. Tomorrow is Pledge Day in support of the Calgary Children's Foundation here at Global News Radio 770 CHQR. And I've been lucky enough to chat with some of the grassroots charities that the dollars you donate go to. Today, the charity we're featuring is ARC, or the Alberta Adolescent Recovery Center. So what is ARC? ARC treatment is a long-term, semi-residential program based on the 12-steps model, leading to total abstinence. Above all, ARC is for families, families united against addiction. I caught up with one of the families who have been through the program, and one family member is now a senior peer counsellor with the program. Meet Zaina Hassan. I wanted to know what life was like for Zaina before she started at ARC. Well, it's, it's always hard whenever I'm asked that question, truly, because it was just absolute chaos. <laughs> I was really addicted to... Um, like ketamine and Xanax were my drugs of choice. Um, however, I was always using a lot at at, uh, at a time kind of thing. Um, I was also extremely suicidal and um, very self-destructive. And it was really, um, I don't know how to say it, like it was a dire situation really. Like any moment I could have not survived. Um, with the rate that I was going at. Um, and so I was I was really hopeless. And to be honest, like I didn't even want help at that point. I had gone to a couple of through different treatment programs. I went to a treatment center. Um, I've been in the psych ward a lot. Um, and at that point, really, I just felt like nothing could help me. Like I was not able to be reached or I wasn't getting it. And, and I didn't even care at that point either what had happened, like what would happen to me. And so, yeah, I I was seeing a counselor at the time who actually was the clinical director at ARC at the time. And so she uh, spoke with my dad and Bridget and, um, and me as well and kind of introduced the idea of ARC. And luckily, like I really just, I didn't, uh, I, I believe it's like the small part of me that, that did have hope, even though I didn't believe that it was there. 
that that made the decision to agree to go. Um, and it's really it's really incredible to recognize the fact that I actually did end up there um, and and survived even just getting to the intake. Was there a, a rock bottom at any time? Uh, there were many. Oh yes, there were many. Um, and really, like my my rock bottom uh, happened early on in my in my using, and um, I just kept digging. Right, like I I would experience a little bit of hope, and then it wouldn't work or whatever it was, and and uh, and then it got to the point where I just I really had no care in the world about what happened to me. Um, I didn't want to live like I. I was just done. You heard Zaina mention that she had tried other programs, but nothing seemed to work. Mike Moss is Zaina's father, and I asked him why they chose the Alberta Adolescent Recovery Center. Because we had tried a couple of other options, and we had sent her to, you know, kind of a North American renowned treatment center. Um, we gave it our all, and, and that, that didn't seem to work. And the recommendation was that she needed long-term treatment and uh, treatment that was focused on the family. Um, you know, art doesn't just treat the client. They also have programs to get the parents involved and the siblings involved. And because the disease of alcoholism and drug addiction really impacts the entire family. And, and ripple effect through the greater family as well. But um, I, to be honest, it was our last hope. You know, the word hope, you're gonna hear it a lot. Um, when your kid is addicted, life seems hopeless and there is no hope for a bright future. You just, you're, you're at your wits end. And ARC provides that hope when you've tried everything else and you run out of ideas. ARC is there for families that really need that kind of help. Like I think there's some adolescents who try a program like a 30-day program or try some of the government-funded programs and it might work for them. But Zaina was not one of those people. And so that's why we tried it. We were really desperate. And I think um, one of the other things that ARC does for families is it uh, introduces you to a community. And it's a community of people that understand the addiction. When you have a child who's addicted, you suddenly feel really isolated because as much as people want to try to understand what it's like to have a child in addiction, people don't understand. And I was one of those before. Um, and so, as soon as you walk in the doors, like I would say day one, we walked in the doors, Zaina was admitted and taken in. It was a really horrible day. But the next night we walked in again and we met all of these parents uh, who were just like us, you know, from the whole, the whole gamut of society. But their problem and their challenges and their worries and their fears were exactly the same as us. And that was really the first time that we we had that feeling. And to be honest, I can't think of any other treatment program that would give parents that feeling, right? And that's that's a big part of it, that there may be times as, as we as a family and as parents are going through the program where you wanna kind of give up. And I'm sure for Zaina, there were times where she wanted to give up and get out, but you've got that 
community support that encourages you just to keep going. As I mentioned at the beginning, Zena is now a senior peer counselor at ARC, so she has a first-hand look at how the Pledge Day dollars go right into the program. So I asked her, how are the Pledge Day dollars used at ARC? I just think that, you know, any time that there is uh, a fundraising opportunity or ARC receives money, like I just, I just think that that is going towards the clients and, and their chance at life. For more information on ARC, you can go to aarc.ab.ca or contact ARC at 403-253-5250. Such so, day starts at 8 a.m. tomorrow morning and runs till 6 o'clock in the evening. I'm Dave McIver with Global News Radio 770 CHQR. So many amazing charities that will be the recipient of the dollars raised tomorrow through the Calgary Children's Foundation. ARC is one of them, and they do such great work, boy. Uh, the, the stories you hear tomorrow, obviously that what the report that Dave just did, Andy, you know, touches your heart. You'll mm-hmm. hear more of that tomorrow and, and really understand the grassroots work these charities are doing in Calgary. Well, you want to know where your dollars are going. And, uh, you know, to say that these stories pull at the heartstrings is an understatement. Mm. And with 17 different charities benefiting and yeah. partnering with the Calgary Children's Foundation, there's something that everybody's, there's something you're going to relate to and connect to. As Dave mentioned, it uh, kicks off at 8 a.m. tomorrow, Pledge Day 2020. Sadly, we can't have visitors joining us this year. So if you can help out, we'd love for you to go online and join us that way. CalgaryChildrensFoundation.com.